This is uh, Page Care Theory 3, Unit 1, Part 1. Welcome back after a long summer. Good to see all of you. So let's talk about IV therapy. <coughs> I just read something really shocking yesterday. A new study is, was published in JAMA. So uh, this is, I'm going off, <laughs> digressing a little bit. Uh, but it has to do with fluid resuscitation, IV therapy. Um, and I'm semi-excited about it. Um, so the general rule is for hemorrhagic shock, you give fluids. You would never give a vasopressor, something that would cause vessel constriction. But there's a new study out of JAMA suggesting that uh, giving a vasopressor like vasopressin uh, might, uh, might improve survival. So it's interesting. It's gonna th throw everything into turmoil now. Okay, so uh, equipment you're gonna need for IV therapy. Boring. <laughs> you need an IV bag. You're going to need IV tubing. You're going to need a macro or micro drip. Macro, the one you're going to use most often. Macro drip means uh, so there are uh, different types of macro drips where the number. But basically, um, the most common macro drip tubing you're going to use is one where 10 drops is equal to one mL, <coughs> one mil. Uh, micro drip uh, is uh, one drop is equal to, uh, or 60 drops is equal to uh, one mL. Uh, tourniquet, alka swab, IV catheter, transparent dressing over top of the IV insertion, uh, some tape, <coughs> some two by two gauze. I put PR in there because two by two gauze typically you use if, if it bleeds a little bit, just to wipe away the blood. Uh, so types of fluids are going to use, um, uh, the, the fluids you're going to use in the field will be isotonic fluids, most likely normal saline. Normal saline has been the gold standard in uh, EMS for decades, and it's still the gold standard here in Ontario. Uh, a better solution is actually ringers lactate or lactated ringers, and I'll talk about that a little bit. But um, normal saline is what we still carry. And uh, here we go. So normal saline is 0.9% uh, sodium chloride. <coughs> um, now, do you know what percent you guys are doing uh, pharmacology this semester and uh, you're going over medical math? Does anyone know what a percent solution represents um, and based on how many mLs? I'd say from the blank stairs, that's probably no. So, so it's percentage based on 100 mils and it's um, basically number of grams or milligrams in 100 mils. So. Uh, so a 1% solution would be 1 gram in 100 mLs. So a 0.9% solution would be 0.9 grams in 100 mLs. And 0.9 grams is the same as 900 milligrams. This is painful, eh, on the first day? That's terrible, yeah. It's like, what the hell are you doing to us, Rob? <laughs> <coughs> we just got back. Start slowly. Uh, so lactated ringers is the other. Uh, hypotonic solutions, uh, so that means isotonic, as you know, means, means the number of solutes in the solution, the IV solution is more or less equal to the number of solutes and the concentration of solutes in blood. Hypotonic would be the number of solutes is lower than blood, so, so a hypotonic solution has a greater fluid content, and that means that if you administer a, a hypotonic solution, it's gonna leak out of the blood stream more quickly. It's gonna leak out of the blood vessels, the capillaries, and into the interstitial space. 
Um, so examples of hypotonic solutions include uh, 0.4, 5% sodium chlorides, 5% uh, dextrose and water, 3.3% uh, dextrose and water. <coughs> and when you're in the hospital and you get the opportunity to start IVs, um, you may be asked to administer any one of a number of different solutions. It won't be just normal saline or lactated ringers. It could be anything. So basically, you know, a nurse will say to you, can you uh, hang a 500 ml bag of, of um, two thirds and a third, uh, uh, which is just another solution. And, um, uh, and start an IV in the lady in bed 12 or something. So you'll be with your instructor, you'll talk about what size catheter you're gonna use, and the size of the needle will depend on what uh, she or he needs fluid for. So if it's for fluid resuscitation, so large volumes of fluid, it'll likely be a size 18 IV or bigger. If it's for just keeping the vein open for meds now and then, it might be a size 20 is typical for adults or a size 22 for a child. <coughs> so the lower the number, the bigger the needle, the higher the number, the smaller the needle. It sounds counterintuitive, but that's what it is. A hypertonic solution would be a solution where the number of solutes in the solution is greater than that of blood plasma. So 5% dextrose with normal saline would be a hypertonic solution, 50% dextrose in water, which is what you give to hypoglycemic diabetics. 20% uh, mannitol. Does anyone remember what mannitol is used for? What mannitol is? Anyone remember what mannitol is? We, I mentioned it just briefly. Mannitol is a sugar. Um, and uh, with head injury patients, sometimes uh, they'll get mannitol in hospital or by the CCPs. And it's just a, it's a big um, sugar molecule that the body can't, uh, um, that doesn't cross a blood-brain barrier and the body can't metabolize. Um, so we just excrete it. But um, as a big sugar molecule, when you, when you administer mannitol to head injury patients and it circulates through the brain, it draws fluid from the interstitial space into the vascular space and then you pee it out. So excess sugars we always pee out and it takes water with it. So they call it an osmotic diuretic to treat head injuries to, to temporarily reduce the, the elevated intracranial pressure. So usually hang a bag of <coughs> mannitol. I think it's, I can't remember if it's a 200 mil bag or 500 mil bag, but um, if you look at uh, any, any pack of gum, they usually have mannitol in them. It's just sugar, right? It's a sweetener, but it's a big sugar, uh, you know, it's low calorie gum because it's a big sugar that you can't, your body can't process because it doesn't leave the blood vessel and, and you just pee it out, your kidneys. So if you had a head injury and you chewed about maybe 5,000 packages of this, <laughs> you could probably reduce your intracranial pressure. But I have no, no idea how many, uh, you know, I could probably figure it out, right? Do the math. Let's take a look. How much mannitol is in this thing? Just says mannitol, but it doesn't tell you how much. In sugars, it says zero grams because you pee it out. Mm, I don't see mannitol in mine. 
might be mannitol in yours. Anyway. Say what? <laughs> okay. Five uh, percent dextrose with lactate rings would also be a hypertonic solution. So, the the other uh, word used some sometimes for um, the solutions we administer is crystalloids. So saline and ringers are considered crystalloids. <coughs> Colloids are things like packed red blood cells, fresh frozen plasma, and dextran. And um, um, the typical IV size IV bags that you'll carry on the ambulance here. Are anywhere from 250 mLs to 1,000 mL bags. Uh, most services carry um, a 250 cc bag, a 500 mL bag, and a 1,000 mL bag. Um, some services have eliminated the, two, eliminated the 250. I don't know why, the 250 is what you'd wanna hang for a kid because if you've got a two-year-old or a three-year-old, um, uh, you don't wanna risk uh, giving them too much fluids, so a smaller bag is generally better, uh, but... Um, if, you, if all you have is a 500cc bag, you just have to be cautious. Because you can put children into heart failure. If you give them too much fluid, it backs up into their lungs. And um, a paramedic friend of mine, a very good paramedic, in fact, an outstanding paramedic, uh, did that by mistake once. He hung a, a, a one liter bag on this kid and the IV was dripping at a, at a reasonable to keep vein open rate very slowly. But what happens sometimes is you got an IV in place and it's dripping slowly uh, and they move their arm or something and suddenly the, the catheter comes off the wall of the, the vein and now it's flowing fast. And he ran in about 600 mLs before he knew it and uh, the kid had bilateral crackles in the lungs from too much fluid. So put the kid into heart failure. Not good on your resume, right? <coughs> So uh, preparing IV bags, you want to check the solution. Make sure you got the right solution. Now, here's, here's the danger, I'm going to tell you. You're working for a paramedic service. You've been working there for eight years. You've always given normal saline. You don't carry any other solution. Every day, you check your bags. There's a normal saline bag in there. And after a while, you just you don't check anymore. You don't check the bag. You just see a bag, and you see it's the right size and then you hang the bag and you start administering the fluid. Um, the trouble is that every once in a while a service will order in normal saline and the company will ship them something different and then uh, you'll end up hanging the wrong solution. And this happened uh, when I worked for a different service years ago. Uh, there were probably maybe 15 to 20 paramedics in a single day who were all administering the wrong fluid all happened all at once and all because like a, a a bunch of boxes came in with a wrong IV solution and the medics just became complacent and stopped checking their fluids right um, but you got to check the fluids you've also got to check the expiry date uh, again for the same reason that um, you'll check the expiry date the start of every shift day in day out on over time and after a while you just you never ever see a bag that's out of date but when you stop checking that's when you get an IV bag that's out of date and the bag will be out of date and you'll administer it and you'll go to the hospital and the nurse will know it because they're very thorough and they'll write in a complaint to the service and you get disciplined 
right? So you gotta check, you know, your seven rights with drugs, with fluids, everything, you gotta do it every single day. And even when you've done it at the start of the shift, you do it again on the call, right? Check the fluids. So we check the solution, we check the expiry date, we look at the fluid for clarity, that there's no particles floating around in there. You look for leaks or condensation, uh, you check the ports, the safety caps are in place, all that sort of thing. So uh, the volume is usually up at the top right hand corner, the solution's right there, 0.9% saline, which is how many milligrams in 100 mLs? Point nine grams or how many milligrams? 900. 900, yeah. So 900 milligrams or 0.9 grams. Yeah, good. Uh, excellent. Check for clarity, for color, check the expiry date. Every IV bag in our lab has expired. <laughs> right? We're not going to buy new bags, it's too expensive. So we get used bags, old bags. <laughs> old bags. We call the service, say, give us your old bags. One old bags, go to the nursing home. All right. Uh, so that says September 06. That means September 2006. That means it's good to the end of the month. You, t you tell how old this presentation is, eh? <laughs> Second year we were running the program here at Georgian. I think. Actually, it's probably older than that. All right. So, uh, solution. So, this is the administration <laughs> set port. Uh, so you pull that off and uh, you got to make sure that uh, when you pull this off, you got to make sure that you don't touch this with your fingers or anything because that area is sterile and you want to put the spike from the IV administration set in there. Uh, that's the medication port there. So if you're mixing medication with an IV bag, which uh, you wouldn't do, that's not part of a PCP scope of practice, but it is part of the ACP scope of practice. But you would wipe that off with an alcohol swab like you'd wipe anything off and then inject the drug in there. Uh, this is um, this is a, an old administration set. I should really replace it, but but the parts are more or less the same except the last part. So so there's the insertion spike, and when you practice inserting the spike into the tubing uh, uh, when you're in the lab, um, you can just uh, hold it and push the spike straight in. But most people twist it. I twist it because I was taught that way, and I just do it out of habit. Uh, so either work straight in or twist, uh, but when you put it in, just be really careful. You're holding it straight, and you're um, not going to go through the sides because people have gone through the side of the plastic and stabbed themselves, and that's just, you know, not good. Um, this is the this is a drip chamber, and this is micro drip. That means there's 60 drops per mL coming out of that thing, and that's a drip chamber. The drip chamber should be. Uh, filled about halfway. I'll talk about how to do that. And it's a roller clamp. This is an injection port. Oftentimes there's an injection port down here. Flash bulb. Uh, you'll never see those anymore. I won't even talk about the flash bulb. And uh, this is a lure lock tip that would uh, connect to an IV catheter. This is just a, a way of um, clamping down the, the IV uh, tubing. So uh, the first one there is 60 drops per mL. The second one is 15 drops per mL, and you can see it up here. Um, I haven't seen a 15 dropper mL administration set in a long, long time. I've used a 10 drops per mL for years and years and years, and you likely will too, but when you get hired by a service, just take a look at it. When you do your rideouts, just take a look. Right. Um, so 
Uh, macro can come in uh, 10 drops per ml, GTDS is drops, 10 drops per ml or 15 or 20, and the macro drip is always uh, 60 drops per ml. The macro drip we typically use for kids where we want to administer the fluid slowly. So a macro drip tubing uh, sort of limits your ability to administer fluids really, really fast. And it's, uh, the microdrip is also good for administering medications where you want to uh, deliver a precise number of mLs per minute or per hour. Okay. So uh, microdrip tubing, restrict fluids, give more precise infusions, so microdrip for large volumes, uh, already talked about. So the roller clamp is used to adjust the rate of infusion. Uh, oops, and this is a lure lock that uh, locks onto the, it screws onto the IV catheter at the site where you started the IV. So you just advance it to the end of the tubing and screw it in. And um, when you're starting IV, we always want to use a septic technique. Um, uh, and uh, that makes intuitive sense, I'm, I'm sure. But um, sometimes in a really um, uh, intense, high stress call, um, people will, um, not many, but some people will uh, neglect to swab the site properly, for example, and uh, that's just not acceptable at any time, no matter what the circumstance. So whether you've got a patient who's in cardiac arrest or someone with severe multi-system trauma, you start an IV the same way every time, right? You prepare the site, you swab it properly, clean it off, and then start, start an IV. If you miss the IV, you don't use the same needle to go up here. You grab a, a new needle that's clean, right? Because whenever a needle makes contact with the skin, it picks up um, microbes that are on the skin, sometimes pathogens that are on the skin, and those microbes are uh, found on the skin are not found in the blood. And so you're basically just transferring what was on the skin into the blood if you're using the same needle. So you gotta swab properly, you gotta change the needle. Um, and you're going to go over sharp safety in the lab, right? And you've probably done a little bit of that already. Basically, you announce when sharps are out and when sharps are gone, sharps are away. Uh, now the veins. <coughs> uh, I'll give you a list of the, the veins that you should know. And when you start starting IVs in hospital, uh, you may have a nursing staff sort of quizzing you about your knowledge base to see if you learned what you're supposed to learn in this class and uh, so you should be familiar with the, the, the names of some of the key veins um, in reality though basically when I'm starting a, an IV I'll say I've started it and I'll document I've started in the hand or I've started in the forearm or I've started it in the AC which is the anticubital fossa right here uh, or something like that but um, when it comes to IV attempts, we always start uh, uh, distal to proximal, so um, with some exceptions. So if I'm starting a, a number 20, which is a relatively small IV for just running fluid TKO in an older person, I'm always going to try in the hand first. If I miss the hand, I might try here, and if I miss here, I might go there, right? or I might go to the other hand. If I put a tourniquet on and I don't see anything here, I might look in the other hand. Yeah. Two, yeah, officially two. 
Yeah, so it depends on the circumstances too, right? Um, if getting them to the hospital is a higher priority, uh, definitely not more than two. But here's the thing, I may have told you this, I, I use, I call it the Zen approach, I'm not sure if that's the right terminology or not, but I use the Zen approach for any skill, and to me, the Zen approach means, you know, every step is a journey and a destination. So if I'm doing a skill, I know it sounds corny. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's as deep as I get. So if I'm starting an IV, no matter what my role is there, if I'm the lead paramedic and in charge of everything, if I'm starting IV, I'm 100% focused on that IV because I want to get it in. If And I've seen this because I've had lots of uh, paramedics as students that I've precepted. Um, I can see when I'm precepting a student, um, if their mind is somewhere else, they miss IVs, they miss skills, they miss intubations, they screw things up because their brain is somewhere else. My view is when you do a skill, 100% focus on that skill, nothing else, and then once you got the IV in place, then you step back 10,000 feet or 30,000 feet, get the big picture again. But for the skill, that's where you are. Once you're done, right? So there's, there's some teachers in paramedicine who have this attitude that, you know, when you're doing scenarios, it's not my view, when you're doing scenarios and you're doing a skill, they're gonna be shouting at you and trying to distract you and you have to stay focused. So if, if anyone takes that approach with you, just stay focused on what you're doing. Um, and then take a step back after that. I don't think that's a good approach, you know. I think uh, you need to be focused on a skill. Um, and I can tell you, starting an IV or not starting IV can make a difference between whether you're going to resuscitate a cardiac arrest or not. We had a, we had a cardiac arrest um, in his 50s in ventricular fibrillation, should be alive today, uh, but uh, we couldn't get an IV on him. And it wasn't for lack of focus, but we just couldn't get an IV on him. We tried and tried and tried. It was like 20 minutes into the arrest before we finally got a line into him. And once we got a line into him and we gave some meds, we got a pulse back. Um, but then we lost the pulse again and we lost him. But uh, um, that's why you gotta be so focused, right? And you gotta make sure that the, the intravenous line is in the vein. And don't be ashamed to say, I don't think it's in the vein or I'm not sure um, because then it alerts your ACP partner or your partner to, to check it. Um, we ran a cardiac arrest once and uh, uh, another medic started a line and he didn't notice it was interstitial. And um, I started giving drugs in that line and then we ran some fluids in that line. And like five minutes later, I noticed the arm is puffed out like this. So all of that epinephrine went interstitial. And what that does is it causes necrotic tissue. And eventually that tissue would just slough off. There'd be a big gaping wound there. Um, but I guess he didn't know and maybe he didn't think to check it himself and I just you know took a leap of faith that you know he was checking it and he he was confident it, the line was in the vein and turned out not to be and so so um, you got you got to check your your ego and your insecurities at the door and uh, you know just openly admit I'm not 100% sure this is in the vein let's try it out first and see if it goes interstitial so some veins you need to know by name um, are in uh, black here. So the dorsal carp metacarpal veins, so those are the veins on the back of the hand, dorsal metacarpal veins. But again, as I say, in hospital, 
you're not going to say to the nurse, would you like me to start the, the IV in one of the dorsal metacarpal veins? You're just going to say, you know, where would you like me to start the IV? And the nurse will say, well, in the hand of the forearm is good. You know. Would that be the dorsal metacarpal veins? <laughs> I've heard enough of you Rob Terrio students. Uh, but I mentioned this because you might get tested uh, in the hospitals. Uh, the cephalic vein is number four there. That's the one here by the thumb. It's, it's usually a good juicy one as well. <laughs> You see, it's a medical term for veins. Uh, if you're working with an ACP and they're starting an IV in the neck, don't turn to your ACP in a crowd and say, she's got nice jugs. <laughs> no joke. I've worked with medics who've done that. You know, we're trying to start a line. And they'll say, I can't get one here, but I think she's got some nice jugs. And I'm like, uh... You mean jugular vein, right? <coughs> uh, number two, the median cubital vein, which is uh, up there. That's the anticubital fossa, basically. We, we just refer to that as the AC, or the anticubital fossa. So we started uh, number 18 in the right AC. That's how we document it. That's how we verbalize it. <coughs> but there's a uh, median cubital fossa, cubital vein, rather, sorry and uh, the cephalic vein. So uh, the tourniquet. So the objective is to restrict venous flow without restricting our arterial flow, right? So arterial flow is gonna, gonna go down this way and we're gonna restrict venous return so that hopefully it, it enlarges the vein, the vein becomes engorged. <coughs> and um, there are different tourniquets. Um, these uh, tourniquets you're looking down at the bottom are some of the best tourniquets. They're much better than the cheap throwaway ones. But the trouble is, uh, they're not clean. The disposable ones are at least clean. These ones get dirty, and you know, medical carry them around in their pocket with a billion pathogens crawling all over them, and never clean them. Uh, so that's not good. Um, so you find a vein, you want to swab it for 15 to 30 seconds. It seems like a long time, but that's what you're expected to do. And when you're in hospital starting IV, that's what you better do. Right? You better do it properly. And we, um, we swab in a um, circular motion starting in the center and working our way out like this. As opposed to doing this. And uh, the IV catheter, a couple of things about the IV catheter. So the, the, there's a, a steel uh, needle in this or stylet in the center and it's surrounded by a, a Teflon catheter or some sort of material catheter that's flexible. And so once the, the needle itself gets into the vein, you advance the flexible catheter into the vein and then you pull the needle out. So there's no needle that stays in the skin or in the vein. <coughs> And there's a flash chamber so that when you get into the vein, you'll see blood back coming back into the flash chamber, and that's usually no, you know when you're in the vein. But you could get flash and then accidentally put the needle through the posterior wall of the vein. That can happen too, so you got to be careful. If you uh, if you get into the vein and you get flash and you advance the catheter into the vein and the catheter goes in easily, then you know you're probably in the vein. Almost 99% certain you're in the vein. And then uh, uh, most uh, IV catheters now have a, 
uh, button of some sort where you uh, you hit it and retracts the needle into this um, safety barrel and uh, keeps you from leaving a sharp uh, around the site around the area right but um, that thing's still not considered safe because you could sit on it and break it and the needle could stab you in the buttocks um, I can tell you that uh, IV needle stick injuries were really common when I started in this business. Uh, I know medics who would, you know, they'd start an IV and then they'd stick a needle in the cushion, this, the ambulance seat, which is the dumbest thing ever. <coughs> and someone would come in and sit on it, get a needle up their derriere. Um, or they'd leave their, they'd put their used needles into the trauma bag and then you go in to get something and stab yourself in the finger with it. It was... It was horrifying in those days, horrifying. I remember watching a, um, a reality TV paramedic show out of the US and um, this guy who was a trainee got s stabbed in the leg with an IV needle that was sitting around on the bench and uh, his preceptor just kind of laughed about it and the student laughed about it and he was like, oh, you have it so kidding me? <clears throat> So gauges, um, the bigger the number, the smaller the needle. So 24 would be for a, an infant or a toddler. It's a really tiny needle and it's so tiny it's, it flexes. And when you try to s put a 24 into a kid, it flexes really easy. And uh, with kids, you generally wanna grab their hand like this and pull on the vein like that, anchor it when you start an IV. And sometimes what you can do, does anyone have a pen light on them? With kids, and this generally works up to about the age of five, <coughs> your skin's translucent, translucent, right? So, is this supposed to work? Should, oh, it's got the plus. Oh. <laughs> Still not working. Oh, there we go. So, you can't see it in my hand. But with kids, if you take the pen light and put it on the palm of their hand, you can see the light coming through, and that illuminates the veins. It's very cool. Cool little trick. So 24, 22 we use on kids as well. 20s we'll use for most adults who just need uh, uh, an IV to keep the vein open, TKVO. And uh, <coughs> 18 is a minimum size for fluid resuscitation where you think the patient might need blood. So if you've got a trauma patient who's likely gonna go to surgery, uh, the minimum size IV you should start is an 18. And if you're thinking of an 18 for fluid resuscitation, you should aim for uh, a 14 if you can. Now 14 is big and it's intimidating for people to start a 14. But what I tell medics I work with is, um, like the service I work for, every service has a different culture, right? Very few medics where I worked would ever start an IV bigger than a 16. They were used to a 16, they started a 16. 16s tend to be shorter than the 14s and they just don't do 14s. And I was working with a medic one day. We had a trauma patient who had these spectacular veins. I mean, they were beautiful. They were like, just beautiful. Um, and um, he pulled out a 16. I said, no, can you, do you mind starting a 14, please? He said, I've never started a 14. I said, hey, if you can start a f 16, you can start a 14 easily. In fact, on this guy, you could start an eight. And an eight's like a garden hose, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, would that be the same for like a trauma patient? So, yeah, you're always trying to go big when it comes to fluid resuscitation. So pediatric patients, obviously in a two-year-old, you're not going to get an 18 in. But um, you want to go as big as you can. 
as big as is reasonable. Because if you're administering blood products, uh, the red blood cells, if if the IV, if the blood is pushed in quickly, the red blood cells get damaged when they go through a smaller needle. So in a kid, you know, if you manage to start at 20 or 22 uh, and they need blood products, they're just going to get it very slowly. Or the doc is going to start a larger IV. You might do a cut down to get access to a vein, a bigger vein to do uh, get a larger bore IV in place. This is um, uh, a butterfly needle and we use these in newborns and um, you know, less than one-year-olds and there's no Teflon catheter over top of the needle. It's just a needle that goes in the vein and stays in the vein. It's a very short needle. Sometimes they use this for drawing blood on really frail elderly people too where the veins are tiny and fragile and they can't get a bigger IV in place. Uh, so commonly used in children uh, or for blood samples. And uh, let me go back to this. Sometimes we use this for scalp veins too in, in you know, one-month-olds, newborns, we'll get access to vein and scalp. That's not part of your scope of practice. But, uh, um, so the, the, uh, the gauze, as I mentioned, is just to clean up blood. Well, that's it. Any questions so far?